0: This morning, uh, let's see, I gotta turn this on, don't I? That helps. This morning, I would like to introduce you to um, uh, Laverne Ford Wimberly. Uh, she's an 82 year old member in uh, the Metropolitan Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, she's a retired, uh, she's a widow, uh, retired school teacher, uh, principal, and superintendent. and uh, she has kind of become known at the church because of the way she, uh, she comes to church all dressed up. And uh, like most of the people in her church, and like most of the people in America, uh, she has spent the last year watching the services online, as it's, their services are live streamed as well. And she just could not bring herself to be watching the, uh, the live stream cult, the live stream culto, I want to say that in Spanish, live stream worship as, uh, in a bathrobe or in pajamas. Or in sweatpants and so she dresses up at home just like she does in church she said that uh, as a as a child her mother started her on that routine she said uh, so every Saturday night she would lay out her dress and her shoes because in her mother's words it was necessary for her to be presentable if she was going to meet the king on Sunday morning so she does that every Sunday and now since she has uh, been at home, she still does that. And uh, she takes these selfies of her and put them online for the other members of the church and for her friends, and, and uh, they just kind of get a kick out of it and bring joy and stuff. And uh, she says that the, the pastor says this, that uh, her hats are just an external expression of the joy in her heart. Robin Watkins, he's, she's the uh, executive pastor there. She says that if anyone is feeling downtrodden, they just have to look at her and they feel uplifted. Her heart is as beautiful as her outfits. Amen. And uh, so I, there was a member of their church who was a reporter for a local television station, and, and he did a story on that. And then that came the, in the local news in Tulsa, and then it went viral. And then I came about this. So this is, I thought I'd run through some of the photos of some of her her uh, outfits while she's at home. <laughs> she says she probably has about 50 hats. And uh, when they asked her, when the, when the reporter asked her what she was going to do for Easter, she didn't know yet when this was written. She says, but it's got to be special. So, because it's Easter. So, yeah. <laughs> Dress the meat the king. Uh, as I was thinking about uh, Easter for the last couple of weeks, and uh, Easter is always kind of one of those things for, for preachers to say, what more can we say about the resurrection? <laughs> and uh, so I'm thinking about Easter the last couple of weeks, and uh, the question that I kind of tossing around in my head is, um, what would it mean for the world if Jesus really did raise from the dead? If that really happened, what would that mean for the world? And if Jesus really did raise from the dead, what would that mean for us today? And so that's the question that was rattling around in my head, and that's when I ran across that article about Laverne. And the word that came to my head was confidence, that this is a gift of confidence, of trusting. And I'm thinking, well, what makes up confidence? And I started looking at how how the resurrection gave the disciples confidence and how it should give us confidence, and I came up with two things. One is hope, and the other is trust or faith. Hope and faith. You put those two together, you have confidence. Now, some of the things that we see Christians doing, unfortunately, on the news today, that's not confidence. That's bulldozing. That's, that's bullying. That's, uh, that's actually fear. Confidence is different. Amen. What we see the disciples live out is different. This is confidence. Hope hope and faith for the early disciples for the first century christians the resurrection was everything they had staked all of it on the resurrection Mm -hmm. paul said that without it our preaching is useless he said without the resurrection we are to be the most pitied people in the world without it Mm -hmm. it is that important and there are some people who say, well, it didn't really happen, or it wasn't happened, and, and I'm not gonna go through these things of, of proof of, or evidence or whatever about that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But there are people who say that it didn't happen, that they, and they portray the disciples as either, you know, a bunch of gullible hicks who had a, a thing for ghost stories, or they were conspirators. That they had concocted some sort of conspiracy of, of stealing the body, And in order to, uh, in order to launch this new cult that they were talking about. Well, that's not what we get in the New Testament at all. The disciples, they were just as skeptical as everybody else. They were just uh, about, they were just as unbelieving as, as we would be. Sometimes I think when we read the story on this side of history, we forget how hard that is to believe and how hard it was for them to believe. And They were not some gullible hicks. They were just as skeptical as anybody else. And they weren't conspirators. If they were, they did a terrible job at it. Because, for one thing, it depended on the the testimony of women, and in the first century, you wouldn't do that. Their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. They would have had plenty of time to kind of clean up some of the the differences in the gospel accounts. Was there one angel? Was there two? Was Mary by herself or was she with other women? Some of these other things, they would have had plenty of time to clean those things up so it's all nice and tight. So they really were bad at it. But there was a conspiracy, but it wasn't by them. It was by the authorities. It was by the people who were embarrassed by an empty tomb. They're the ones who made the conspiracy. And they could have easily disproven it if they'd just taken them to the real tomb and showed them the seal that's still there, and if they wanted to open it up, they could see and that there was still a body there, but they didn't. Those were the conspirators. So these early disciples, these early Christians, had staked everything on the resurrection. This is what make or break. So it gave them hope, but it also gave them faith. It was not just an encouragement, it wasn't just a feeling of victory or a feeling of peace because of eternal life, it was also a commissioning. It was also an impulse to push them, to push them out. So I thought we would look at these, the hope and the faith, and I thought we'd go through and answer a few questions that everybody seems to ask that I've never really addressed before. Uh, partly because the answers aren't always as clear as we think they are. But what is that hope? Our future hope, the redemption of our bodies. So we'll be looking at the future hope, but we're also going to be looking at the present faith. In other words, how does the resurrection help us in our, fa- in our hope in the future, and what does it do for us in our present life, in a life of faith? A lot of people, have, almost every other religion or any other thought they, they have an idea of what happens to life after death. We've all got thoughts about this. People have got thoughts about that. The Hindus, they have this incredible, uh, ex, you know, uh, demanding system of karma that you would keep being re- reincarnated, and depending on what happens while you're on this life will affect you in the next life, and where you are, where you're reborn. Uh, Buddhists just hope to be this, this uh, ultimately the lost as this drop inside of an ocean, uh, a Palestinian boy, if he is killed by Jewish or Israeli soldiers, he goes straight to heaven. Uh, indigenous cultures, as well as some Asian cultures, they have a, a thing about uh, ancestor worship. And so everybody's got these kind of ideas. The secularists just you know, say, well, we'll become one with the universe, or it is what it is, you know, you're dead and you're gone. But we all humans have this longing to know what, what is after death. Well, in Christianity, according to the resurrection, death wasn't redefined. Death was defeated. This is the one faith that says death was defeated. It wasn't just redefined. So what does that mean exactly? So we're just going to go through some questions. Who does that mean? What does that mean for this redemption of the body? Well, the New Testament talks about everyone is resurrected. Okay? There is seem to have a special sense for those who are in Christ and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now we can sit here and argue and talk about who's in and who's out, but that's not our job. We can uh, we can argue whether what exactly what you have to believe and how do you have to say it. That's not our job. We'll get to our job in a few minutes. We don't know the heart of another human being. Our job is simply to proclaim the Savior and the kingdom. Our job, as my wife puts it, is when people are in the darkness, to take their hand and give them the door, to guide their hand to the door. That's our job. And they can open it. They can open it with faith. So who is it? Everybody is resurrected. But it appears the New Testament teaches that those who are in Christ and dwelt by the Spirit, there is a special sense. Hebrews calls it a rest. The book of Hebrews calls it our inheritance. And there are other metaphors for that. Where? In the new heaven and new earth. When the God is the creator of this earth and this heaven, and there will be a time when he will put it things right and he will bring, and heaven and earth will merge, and, and the, the Bible calls it the new heaven and new earth. This creator God will create the new heaven and new earth. He will take all the beauty and all the love of this earth and transform it, and it will be a place where we will have all of our needs and all of our wants and our longings met in the new heaven and new earth. What is it? What is, the re- what is the resurrection? It is a physical body. The New Testament doesn't know anything about disembodied spirits floating on clouds. There is a word for that in Greek, but it's not resurrection. Resurrection means body. And our bodies, I, I understand it to be, our bodies will be more real than they are now, more substantial, more solid than they are now. They are true bodies, just like Jesus, who still carries the scars. Jesus was a Jewish man born in Bethlehem, and he is still a Jewish man born in Bethlehem. Why? To be the wise rulers of the new earth. That's the way it was always planned from the beginning. For us to be the wise rulers with Jesus on the new earth. When? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus returns. Now, this is a little confusing because the New Testament is not that clear. What happens between death and the second coming? We don't know. All we know is that Paul says it is to be with Jesus. Jesus told the thief next to him that today he will be with him in paradise. There is something of an intermediate intermediate place here between death and the second coming. Paul says that the dead wait patiently for the resurrection. All I can tell you that it's called paradise and it's with the Lord. But we will still be waiting patiently for the resurrection. And how? By the power of the Holy Spirit the same Spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that empowered Jesus to do his, this ministry, that same Spirit that indwells us, that Spirit will be the resurrecting Spirit for us. When we look at the Gospels, the hope is very, very important. We sing about it every year. We sing about it on Sundays, this victory that we have over death but that's not the whole story. When you look at the Gospels and the Gospel story of the resurrection, it doesn't really deal much with that. It deals with other things, which is what I want to look at this morning in the last couple of chapters of John. When Jesus rose from the dead, he he encountered the disciples, and John has done this incredible thing of giving us this sequence of scenes to show us what the resurrection means for us. A, sex, a sequence of scenes with the disciples, and we're just going to look at them, Do these people who really are awake or are, are woke. A lot of people talk about being woke today. Well, this is what it, this is what it really means to be woke. Amen. We're going to see some people in John chapters 20 and 21 who are really woke, okay? And John is telling us, his fish first readers and us, he is telling us, wake up. So let's look at them. First, there's Mary in tears. Jesus comes and, and, and meets with Mary. We saw the story that, that um, they laid him in the tomb, and Mary comes uh, with the, to the tomb to prepare the body, and the stone is moved away, and the, the tomb is empty, and, and there's no one there. And she just assumed that instead of seeing these symbols of life, the, the places where the linen was and the ark and the stone moved and the empty tomb, she didn't think about this being resurrection. She she thought like us. Dead people stay dead. They don't rise from the dead. And so she automatically assumed that the body had been stolen. The the, the stone that had boomed away was not 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 a symbol of life. It was a symbol of desecration. And so she goes to the disciples, and Peter and John, I'm assuming John, it says the disciple Jesus loved. Most people think it's John. Peter and John come to the tomb, and sure enough, they see it. It's empty. And it says John believed. John believed what? John believed Mary was right. They had stolen the body. Because John says they didn't understand the scriptures. Well, then Jesus shows up at the tomb. The the angels are there, and they say, why are you looking for the dead among the living? And Jesus shows up, and she's in weeping and tears because the body had been stolen. And And he says her name. And this to me is a playing out exactly the scene of Jesus as a good shepherd where he says, The sheep, I know the name, I know the name, my sheep by name, and he says, My sheep know my voice. And as soon as she, he said, Mary, she knew who it was. She thought he was the gardener, which is a very good mistake to make. Because the, the, the book of John begins with creation and it actually ends in the garden. And Jesus is commissioned, like the first Adam, to be the caretaker of the garden. He is supposed to put the world in order like Adam was. And according to Isaiah, this Messiah is supposed to uproot the thorns and the thistles and instead plant myrtles and cypress, and the word will come like rain and snow on the the planet. This is what Jesus... So to mistake him for the gardener is a pretty good mistake. But then she realized that it's Jesus, and she hugs him and wants him to stay forever. And he will, but not in the way she thinks. And he commissions her to go tell the disciples about the resurrection. Go and tell the disciples that he is going to ascend to the Father, my Father, your Father, my God, your God. They are now one family, and she is commissioned to testify to the resurrection. The next, we see the disciples in fear. They're locked in a room, afraid of the Jews. And there's something that happens in this room that takes this this ragtag band of of, of unreliable disciples and turns them into these fearless evangelists. And what was it? He was there in them, there in the room surprising them and he commissions them to proclaim forgiveness. Forgiveness is part of the resurrection. Because death came about because of sin. And the resurrection took and the crucifixion and the resurrection took care of sin. If we don't talk about forgiveness and only talk about eternal life, we're just whistling in the dark because those two things go together. And he's telling them to proclaim forgiveness to the world, not as some personal, emotional experience necessarily, although that is oftentimes an emotional, personal experience, but it is the way of the universe. It is the way of the cosmos. It is the rule of law now that forgiveness is, what we, the forgiveness is how we operate with each other and with God. And those two things go together. That we won't experience the forgiveness of God until we learn to forgive one another. It's like if we had a piano in our room and I put a lock on the piano because I don't want anybody else to play it, well, God can't play it either. He's saying you you proclaim forgiveness, this is now available. And not only that, I'm gonna give you the power to do it. And he breathes on them their spirit. Easter and Pentecost belong together. The coming of the Holy Spirit empowers us to proclaim forgiveness, gives us the authority to proclaim forgiveness. Next comes Thomas with cynicism. He wants hard facts. He comes up late and they tell him about Jesus is risen and he goes, I'm not buying it until I can touch his wounds and put my hand in his side. He wants facts that he can look objective and see and believe, and then he will believe. A lot of people call him Doubting Thomas. That's not the right name for him. I think a better name would be Certitude Thomas because that's what he wants. He wants certitude. He wants something he can can touch and feel. He's like a lot of us. We want facts. We want hard evidence. But Jesus says there's another way of knowing. There is another way to know. And he appears, and suddenly Thomas is backpedaling and going, my God, my Lord, my Savior. There is another way of knowing. There is another way of following. And Jesus says the people who follow without seeing, like you see, they are doubly blessed. And we'll see that in a moment as well. And the last scene is with Peter in remorse. Jesus helps them catch a bunch of fish. They come to the shore. They're out fishing, and he gives them fish and bread, which is another thing full of symbols that would require another sermon, but we're not going to go there yet. And Peter comes up, and we all know the story. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time corresponding to the three denials. And Peter is in remorse, and he says, you know I love you. And Jesus gives him a new job description, you're not a fisherman anymore, you're now a shepherd, and you need to feed and protect my sheep. This is a probing question, do you love me? It's a probing question that many of us really don't want to face. Is that something we really want to face? But Peter faces it. And the thing is, when you face that question and you face the sin of your rebellion and you give a name to it, then nothing else surprises you. When you become acquainted with your own rebellion, your own sin, nothing else surprises you about anybody else, and you know what that makes you? A really good shepherd. He is telling him you have a new job to take care of sheep. And I take that as our commission as well. Not just the person who has the title pastor. This is what we do. You look through the book of Acts and you see it carried out in a dozen different ways. I can look at Shepherd of the Valley and I can see it carried out hundred different ways with you guys we are pastors we are shepherds we take care of the sheep so this brings us back to confidence faith and hope together our hope in the future and our faith in our lives here that's what helps us live confidently and you may be sitting there going, well, that's, that's great, Tommy. Thanks a lot uh, for faith and hope. Uh, that's really good. But tell me, how do I psych myself up to believe better? How do I psych myself up to hope more? I want to believe better. I want to believe more. I want to hope better. I want to understand enough hope. How do I do this? How do I psych myself up? Well, the answer is staring right in front of us. It's staring right in front of us in the whole book of John and it brings us to this climax with Peter and I think every single one of those scenes brings us to the culmination with Peter. There was the fruitfulness with Mary, there's the forgiveness with the disciples, there's the following with Thomas, and now there's this question, do you love me? That's where it all comes down to. Do you love me? There is a different way of knowing. It's Love that believes the resurrection. It's our love of Jesus that believes the resurrection. Not being able to see the scars, not being able to touch the wounds, not being able to read books that argue for the proof of the resurrection. As great as those are, I love uh, Frank Morrison's book, Who Moved the Stone. It's wonderful. It makes me feel better. It makes me think our faith is reasonable, but it doesn't really change me. The love of the savior changes me. It's love that believes the resurrection. Paul's great poem on love in 1 Corinthians 13. He ends it by saying it's a little bit incomplete. We see through a glass darkly. But this isn't much as much as a duty as it is our destiny. That's where we're headed. Love is where we are headed. That's where we're going that's where we exist and love helps us hope more deeply love teaches us to follow more faithfully that is the foundation that underlies the forgiveness and because it is incomplete God's offering to us and his demand on us to love can be a little scary. It can even be a little threatening, maybe. But it's not. It really isn't. Several months ago, my daughter Katie and her husband Pete, they adopted a rescue dog. And uh, this dog, Cleo, lived under a van in Mumbai and was rescued there somehow made her way to England. And uh, they adopted this dog. And when they got her, she was skittish, she was frightened, she was scared. She was a nervous little thing. They had to put a little collar on her to make sure everybody if anybody found her, she would be a nervous dog and, you know, and all that. And one morning, Pete was out walking, her and, and a motorcycle came by and frightened her. She slipped the collar and disappeared. And they had the, the entire... It brought the, actually brought the neighborhood together. They were all looking for this dog. Even the milkman said after his, after his route, he was gonna take his truck and look for the dog. We get a call from, uh, from Katie, and of course, she is beside herself. They are just heartbroken. That night, they slept in their living room on the floor with the front door a little jarred open. And about two or three in the morning, Cleo comes back. And they heard the little collar jingle. And they had to coax her in. And Katie picked her up and brought her in, and they loved on that dog. And today, she's a different dog. It's amazing what love can do. Amen. And I got to think, we are so much like that poor, poor pathetic little dog, living under a van, afraid of everything, frightened, And we hear, we hear God trying to coax us in, but it sounds a little frightening, it sounds a little threatening. But it's not. And when we finally make our way back home, and God coaxes us in, he takes us in his arms and takes us in, and what do we find? We find that he is infinitely gentle that his offering and his demand is not threatening, it's not scary, it's not fearful. He is infinitely gentle. And it's amazing what love can do. Love gives us confidence. Love teaches us to hope more deeply It teaches us to follow more faithfully. If you are learning more about God, the more you learn about God, the better it gets. If you are learning more and it's not better, then it's not God. And you can take that as an absolute truth. The more you learn, the better it gets. That is the underlying foundation. Love can do amazing things with us. That's how we live with confidence and trust in the resurrection. It is the resurrection that brings us victory. It is the resurrection that brings us hope. And it is the resurrection that commissions us to share it with others. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the resurrection. We are thankful for what that means to us today. Forgive us when we forget. Forgive us when we think you're scary. And not gentle. Amen.